Welcome to the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. I'm Katharina Emschelmann, Deputy Director at the Center. Each episode, we invite an international security scholar to help unpack a hot topic that's made the news. In today's episode, we talk about sanctions. Earlier this year, The Economist ran a headline that read, Sanctions are now a central tool of government's foreign policy. Yet the subheading warned, the more they are used, the less effective they become. Why is that? Well, I turn to someone who must know. Sanctions expert Alistair Wellman, a practice fellow here at the Center for International Security. Alistair has over 20 years of experience in investment banking, financial regulation, and regulatory policy implementation. He led compliance departments in Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, and served on the UK Financial Services Authority's policy team for implementation of the Markets and Financial Instruments Directive No. 1. His work at the center focuses on assessing the effectiveness of non-traditional sanctions. Alistair and I discuss why states impose sanctions, different sanction types, when sanctions work and when they don't, and finally, how to sharpen the tool. Now, I'm excited to welcome Alistair Wellman as our November guest on the Berlin Security Beat. Hello, Alistair. Hi, Katerina. It's good to have you on the podcast. Before you joined the center, you spent two years traveling. What was that like? Well, it's been rather different from what I expected because of the pandemic. It changed my my travel plans a bit, but I focused on seeing countries in a little bit more depth uh, than I might have. So I would say the highlight of my time during COVID was being in Egypt with absolutely nobody in the country at sites that usually have thousands of tourists who are running around and having the privilege of being in these places completely empty, other than a few tourist people trying to convince me to use their taxi. But it was certainly a very eye-opening experience and I think probably a once-in-a-lifetime event. I can only imagine. Well, now you're a practice fellow at the Center for International Security here in Berlin, and this is the Berlin Security Beat. What's your first impression of Berlin? I've actually been a regular traveler to Berlin since not that long after the war came down. And it's a city that, in my view, is one of the most interesting in the world, not just because of the history, but also because of the way it's developed. I love the vibe of Berlin. So joining the Hersey School and being able to travel to Berlin more often has been great for me. I have British friends who've lived there for a very long time and observed the city changing. I mean, I, I remember... When I first went to Berlin, you know, hanging out in Prenzlauerberg and going to raves and the sort of thing in abandoned buildings in the east, <laughs> and they are now turned into ad agencies and stuff like that. Maybe I feel a little older when I walk around Berlin, but I feel that the city's matured and become quite a sophisticated place in many ways with some world-class attractions. But yeah, definitely one of the most fascinating cities that I've ever been to. We are facing a standoff at the border between Belarus and Poland. The EU accuses the regime of Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko of flying migrants from the Middle East to the border of Belarus and Poland, where they seek entry into the EU. Last week, on November 15th, the EU foreign ministers amended the sanctions regime to introduce new measures against Belarus for instrumentalizing migration. 
What do you think? What I would say about the Belarus sanctions is that they have been actually quite effective. I mean, they are definitely rattling the, the regime there. The degree to which Russia is involved in meddling in policy in Belarus, I think, is not very clear that there must be some involvement there. And I do think that, and we can talk about this later, but the, the sanctions regime against Russia is an interesting one to look at. You know, it's focused on particular sectors and individuals. It is often paraded in public as kind of evidence that the West is taking Putin on and it's caused some division in the West, I think. If you look at the view that Germany has about sanctions against Russia, the view that Italy has, it's significantly divergent from what the UK, for example, feels should be done. And I think it's an interesting case study in why sanctions aren't effective unless there's unanimity. And I think Belarus is an example of where it can rattle and cause changes in behavior, but maybe not the behavior you actually want. I would say that if you look at what's happening with Belarus, it's antagonizing them and making them do things that are actually causing us more problems than they're solving. But is the solution to walk away from that and let them get away with it? I mean, I don't think anyone would argue that it is. It's a good example of how sanctions can have unintended consequences, even if they're reasonably predictable. I mean, yes. we knew that there'd be a backlash, but the fact that they're now using these poor people as pawns in this game, I think, is appalling, actually. I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for why they want to tighten up. I'm not sure it'll have the right effect. I think what it shows is that you have to have a multilateral approach. You have to have a very clear policy framework of what you're trying to achieve, and only then do sanctions actually work. And almost every single program, they're huge problems. It's not a silver bullet. It's a long-term thing. It causes short-term pain. It can actually cause you a lot of internal pain uh, in terms of the country that's imposing them. And it's a very blunt tool, basically. Thank you. Before we get to the conditions of success for sanctions, maybe you can give us an overview. Why do states even oppose sanctions? I would say one of the main reasons that they do it is to signal their position on something, their displeasure or taking a moral stand or some kind of ethical or political consideration that they basically say, we're not going to deal with this person, this country, this regime or whatever, because we completely disagree with it. Sometimes that has a humanitarian purpose. Sometimes it's just naked politics. And I think we're in an interesting situation now vis-a-vis -vis China, because they're The U.S. is moving towards a situation where there's a power play going on between these two geopolitical forces, and there's a different vision for the world, one's classical Western liberal democracy, and another which is a more authoritarian, top-down state capitalism. And I think those two ideologies are clashing, and the sanctions regime is starting to reflect that. Why is that? I mean, we had a long period after the uh, Cold War where sanctions regimes were almost exclusively focused on human rights issues. You had the program of sanctions against South Africa, which I would argue was extremely effective in bringing that regime to its knees economically and forcing political change through to, if we take another example in Africa, the targeted sanctions against individuals in Zimbabwe, where you had human rights violations going on and the West signaled their displeasure at that by sanctioning these people and saying you can't open a bank account in Europe and you're financially sanctioned. But it was very targeted whilst most trade was still allowed. And then you've got geopolitical goals. And the classic example of that is Iran, where the West has basically taken the view that we can't allow Iran to have nuclear weapons. And we're trying to achieve that policy objective and similar with North Korea. So I think it ranges from 
nebulous ideas of one system versus another, which is what we've got going on with China, through to much more targeted things like we can't allow a country to get nuclear weapons or the technology to develop nuclear weapons. And that's much more tangible. So there's a wide gamut of policy objectives that you're trying to achieve with sanctions. Interesting. You mentioned the broad sanctions programs of the past, and you mentioned targeted sanctions. Maybe you can give us a brief overview of what different types of sanctions are there? What can you sanction? Sure. And that's actually a really good question, Katerina, because it's very pertinent and current. Traditionally, the simplest way to explain a sanction is that a name was given and there was a strict liability regime, which means that you can't plead with the authorities, oh, I didn't know about it. If you've dealt with that individual, then you're in trouble. Um, <laughs> and and that's, that's quite tricky when you don't have a million people working on sanctions implementation. And so that strict liability regime was in some ways quite simple, because if a name was on a list, you couldn't deal with that person. And the person could be a whole country. You've got comprehensive sanctions. Nobody will touch North Korea with a barge pole because the whole country is under sanctions. And to some degree, that's happened with other countries as well. Iran being a case in point, and you couldn't use a visa credit card there. You know, banks couldn't do transfers there. And they would spend a lot of money making sure that any name connected with that country wasn't touched. But more specifically, if you got down to the specific name of an issuer or an individual or a company or whatever, then you just checked it against the list. Those halcyon days of simplicity are over, I would say. I mean, I, that's the easy bit. <laughs> It's become more complicated, and I'll talk a little bit about why. I think this was the first complication, is that when sanctions started becoming more electronic, electronically, uh, when computers got better and it became much easier to find these names, the actors that were being sanctioned got more sophisticated about how they dealt with it. And so they would incorporate companies all over the place and they would be subsidiaries of these names. So you ended up with a practice developing where the rules, certainly in the States, and they're probably the most sophisticated, any subsidiary that's over 50% of a sanctioned entity is included. So you can see how complicated that is because that name is not necessarily on the list. It's that name plus all its subsidiaries. And as a firm, if you're going to make a payment or do a transaction, you have to satisfy yourself that whoever the name is that's in front of you isn't 50% owned by a sanctioned entity. You can imagine a whole industry was created by that. So that's very tricky. And now what's become even more complicated since then is this concept of secondary sanctions. What are those? So secondary sanctions are where a country like the US has reach outside of its jurisdiction. So they sanctions that are targeted to achieve foreign policy objectives with entities that wouldn't normally be under your jurisdiction. For example, a European bank, they implement US sanctions effectively because they're frozen out of the US financial system or there's penalties on them in the US where they have to be in order to be a bank, even when they're doing business outside of the US and maybe incorporated outside of the US. And so you see that the extraterritorial reach of sanctions is much higher than maybe it was a few decades ago. So that's the first one. And then the other new innovation, and this is since 2014, I think, are these sanctions called sectoral sanctions, where Russia is a good example, where they targeted the energy sector there and particular types of financing that went on within the energy sector. I said that you used to consult a list and say, okay, they're on the list. I'm not going to do anything with them. That's become the first stage of a triage process rather <laughs> than an end in itself, because now you're asking yourself, well, What is the transaction that we're doing with that entity? Because they're only sanctioned for certain things. And a good example is lending money. 
and access to capital markets. And I think we're going to see more of this in relation to China. Why is that? The US has kind of said, we have these great, big, deep capital markets. Why are we empowering our enemies to be able to raise money on our market and strengthen their position, basically? With Russia, the energy companies can't access US equity markets and they can't access the bond markets here and raise money in the US. And the reason for that is a geopolitical concern around making their life too easy, but it creates a huge headache for the financial institutions who are allowed to do some things and not others. And to give you some idea of how complicated that is, I was talking to a colleague of mine at a very big bank. He said that they hired 50 or 60 people just to look at the documentation around loans just off the back of the secondary sanctions. And for example, they have to look at the loan documents to see what the terms are for rollovers. Are they creating a new loan? If the lending is over 14 days, then it's potentially illegal. What do we do about existing loans? What if we do it in a subsidiary? What about, you know, so it's very, very granular. And it's not as simple as just looking at a list anymore. And so my concern about the way this is going is that it sounds great that being focused, targeted sanctions, but it creates a massive cottage industry and costs a lot of money. And actually, the more this has gone on, the more I stand back and think, we as a society are spending an awful lot of money on sanctions implementation. But when I actually talk to people in the industry about how many transactions have you actually said no to, how many people have you off-boarded, it's usually zero. That's interesting. Yeah, it is. And I, I do wonder whether the resources that are being spent, I'm talking generally, I'm not saying who spends them. But if you look at us as a society, a lot of the burden is put on the private sector, particularly financial services institutions, because where the money flows, that's where the politics happens. I get that. But increasingly, it's about do, does military technology end up in another country and more tangible things than just money flows? And so how much work has actually gone into that? And we saw with Iraq, we've seen with Iran, that those kind of sanctions are not very effective. Why is that? You say they are not very effective. Maybe you can walk us through one of those cases and highlight the issues you think keep those sanctions from working the way they were intended. Well, I would say two things about that. The first is a lack of unanimity in terms of sanctions right. implementation is always a problem. Now, if we have a look at North Korea, no one would say that that is a weak sanctions regime. It comes from the United Nations. <laughs> It's supposedly global. But China allows oil to flow into North Korea. And over all that period, there's been enough technology flow and trade to allow them to develop a nuclear capability despite a complete embargo. So I think that it is possible to get changes in behavior because of sanctions. And I would say that Iran, up until Trump withdrew from that accord, was probably a case in point. It was a mixture of technology transfers being stopped and slowing the production of nuclear centrifuges and that kind of thing was reasonably effective, coupled with the financial sanctions and crippling the economy. You know, that was reasonably effective in forcing them to the negotiating table to engage with the international community. North Korea is not as engaged. You know, I'm not sure that they're really at the table. And you could say that it's been effective in the sense that the country's totally impoverished and it's not a major power. But I would say that because of the weakness of China in enforcing those sanctions, they've been able to get a nuclear capability, probably. That's my own personal view. And my second comment on whether they work is sometimes you don't have a very clear objective of what you're trying to achieve. And so I think in addition to unanimity, there needs to be a very clear objective of what you're trying to achieve, whether it's focused or more wide ranging. And frankly, as I said earlier, I think it's a very blunt instrument. So unless you're 
actual objective is to hobble the entire economy. I'm actually skeptical about these targeted sanctions because I don't think sanctions work very well in that way, or at least there's not a lot of evidence that they do. They've tended to work when they target an entire country or an entire economy. And most of the time, that brings incredible suffering on the people of that country who are often victims of their own government. So it needs to be handled carefully. You have over 20 years of experience in investment banking, financial regulation, and regulatory policy implementation. What does sanctions implementation look like in practice? We've heard what it's supposed to be in theory, but once sanctions are imposed, what happens next? It's basically lobbed over to the private sector to implement. And as I said, there's a a strict liability regime. So if you don't spend adequate resources on implementing them, you can end up in a lot of trouble. I think that's a lot easier for financial institutions who are used to these things. But I think the area that is becoming problematic is firms that do engineering, for example, like dual use goods. Can they end up in the wrong hands and in Iran or countries that are doing nuclear development? So I think the way things are going You know, let me say that at the outset, a lot of money is spent on sanctions implementation. And I would say that the banks in particular are quite sophisticated actors in this area. But I do wonder whether as a society, we're allocating resources in the most efficient way. I mean, it's true that banks have the biggest pockets, and therefore, they're kind of lumbered with most of the cost. But I do wonder whether It might actually be more efficient to spend more money on law enforcement agencies, sanctions work, rather than the private sector, because the focus would be maybe a little bit more relevant. And let me give you an example of one of the conversations I've had recently with someone who's been in the game for 20 years and on the very front line of doing the screening and this kind of thing in sanctions. And I said to her, what is your biggest irritation with sanctions. And I expected her to say something like, oh, they overly complicated or whatever. And she said, we're just screening everything. And she said, I do wonder whether that's a really good use of money. We're spending billions on making sure that every name that comes through the door for anything is checked against that list. When actually what you need is detective work. Years ago, the sanctioned entities stopped putting any payments through using those names. They know they're on the list. So you would be an absolute idiot to try and put it through the financial system when you know you're on the list. You get much more sophisticated than that. And the grunt work that goes into identifying the front companies or the people that are behind these new names that may not be on the list, that is really hard. And what we're doing is that the setup is that each bank is on their own doing that. And so you've got a very fragmented effort and you've only got it going on in big financial institutions. Engineering companies aren't going to have a team of people looking into that. And so I do wonder whether our actual approach is effective. Law enforcement agencies tend to be quite underfunded. And even the people drafting sanctions and that kind of thing tend to be surprisingly tiny teams of people, even in the US. If you were to give a handful of policy recommendations, what needs to happen to make sanctions more successful, what would those be? Number one, I would say we need to beef up the resources that are available to law enforcement and regulators, not only to develop sanctions that are very carefully thought through and properly drafted. Under the Trump administration, the sanctions against China were very poorly drafted and wasted a lot of money and time for everybody in the industry trying to implement them. So I think that there's work that needs to be done even at that level. But more importantly, 
once they implemented, there needs to be much more work by government agencies to analyze how effective they are and what's going on so that there's more information given to the industry rather than leaving it to the industry. Number two is I think that the regulators in the way that they look at financial services institutions are maybe focusing on the wrong thing. They see big spend on technology, on doing screening, as I mentioned, and they say, oh, that's great. Everything's being screened. But we need a more holistic approach and a more objective view. And I do think that just spending money for the sake of it is not necessarily very effective, particularly when I hear that zero accounts have actually been blocked as a result of those billions being spent. I do think that work needs to be done on assessing how a program's working. You know, how do you actually measure that? When you were still working in the industry, how much follow-up did you experience to see if you were really doing what you were supposed to be doing and if it was working? I mean, there wasn't that much focus on that. I don't actually remember having a conversation about that in my oh, whole boy. time. I think the number of people that are focused on sanctions is probably in the single digits in terms of enforcement in the UK. It's quite scary. So I think sanctions are often about the announcement. It's often about saying we're really tough. You know, we're sanctioning. I'm taking decisive action today. And politicians will say all of that stuff. Well, some scholars say that sanctions are most effective in the threatening phase. Absolutely. Sometimes there's an initial flourish and they're more effective at the beginning until actors know how to circumvent them. Sometimes that creates room for negotiation and that's absolutely fine. I think it's more difficult when you've got a much longer running program. I think there's a lot of evidence that they become less effective over time. There's also studies showing that, yes. And we'll put them in the show notes. ECFR experts Jonathan Hackenbeuch and Pavel Tserka published a piece in the New Statesman last week saying economic arm twisting is on the rise. Europe must learn how to resist it. What do you think? How can the European Union protect itself against economic coercion? That is a really interesting question. I'm not sure that by enhancing the sanctions regime that they'll be able to stop themselves from being economically coerced. I think if you look at China, for example, a rising geopolitical power, they've been very sophisticated in the way that they engage with the West in terms of the technology sector in particular. If you look at Huawei, there's been a lot of press about that. You know, it tends to be a one-way street when you're dealing with Huawei. They'll give you nice cheap kit. And there's lots of technology transfer from your companies and companies that engage with them. Not so much the other way around. You won't find Ericsson being invited in to put up mobile phone masks in China. And there's all sorts of rules saying that nothing that isn't Chinese is allowed into any government department and this kind of thing. So I think that beneath the surface, when you've got this kind of rivalry going on, sanctions is part of the picture. But I do think that maybe we're a little bit naive in terms of the way that we do business. I mean, we're still kind of, oh, globalization's great and, you know, trade will bring about human rights changes. And I think that that engagement with the world is maybe a little bit naive. And I don't think that we can just accept companies, car manufacturers, for example, argument that we can't possibly do without the Chinese market and this kind of thing. I think we're allowing them to drive the agenda maybe more than they could. What should be the consequence? Well, I think if you look at China, they don't allow their companies to drive the agenda. The companies are part of the national movement to build a great country. And we are allowing our companies to drive political choices and our geopolitical position probably too much. And I think it's not about all or nothing. It's about moving the emphasis back towards national security and a clear-eyed 
slightly more cynical view about what's going on in the world. And it's about taking a longer term view than we have been in the past. So I think you've got to be prepared to put your money where your mouth is in certain cases. But I think it's also about having a, an overall approach that's maybe a little bit more full through. Last question on recommendations. What book on sanctions should be on my Christmas wish list? Well, there's a very good book by Juan Zarate called Treasury's War, The Unleashing of a New Era of Financial Warfare. I would say that that's my pick. It's reasonably current. It's a cracking read. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you, Alistair, for doing this. No problem. This was an episode of the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, review, and tell a friend. And of course, don't miss our next episode coming out next month. <laughs>